0: Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. Think of a 17th century British colonist in Massachusetts. Okay, hold that image in your mind. In our journey through the icons of New England, we're about to meet the first colonists, sailing over on the Mayflower. And what you see as you hear me describe them over the next few episodes will depend on all sorts of factors. One factor might very well be what month it is. If it's November, you might be picturing jovial folks akin to the salt shakers my wife has put out as autumnal decorations. They're plump and smiling, the woman's in an apron and bonnet, the man buckled from head to toe, literally, with an extra buckle on his belt. Both of them look ready to tuck into a turkey and a gentle sermon. One month earlier, and the picture changes really dramatically. No one makes a salt shaker out of the witch-mad October Puritans, sallow-cheeked and stringy-haired, looking down their nose imperiously, invoking the Almighty to reinforce their own might. Halloween and Thanksgiving seem to perfectly represent the twin poles of the entire iconographic landscape of early New England. The latter holiday spotlights the idealism and open-heartedness of a persecuted people, carving out a space for their new dream, and sharing a joyful meal with the new friends who made it possible. And I'll have plenty to say about that rosy little picture in an upcoming episode. The former holiday though, which sees Salem, Massachusetts become a thrumming tourist mecca every year, that closes the book on that dream, watching the idealism and open-heartedness sour into mania and fear, as the persecuted become the persecutors. Since it's October, and since those more dour New Englanders are bound to come up, I think it's best we address the giant weight that crushes one's chest when considering the first Bay Staters. The most pervasive pop-cultural image of those colonists, the figure that makes us sneer when we call something or someone puritanical, the icon that acts as a stain on the history of New England. Before we sail on the Mayflower, step out onto Plymouth Rock, and partake in the first Thanksgiving, I think we need to take the opportunity to exercise this particular demon. The accuser. The judge. The Witch Hunter. This is Iconography, and I'm Charles Gustine, your guide on this tour of icons, real and imagined. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm ordinarily not the best tour guide for spooky things. Uh, Don't expect to ever see me running, or participating in, or being in the vicinity of, a ghost tour. If you've heard the Crimson Peak episode of Iconography, you know that my threshold for horror films is pretty much not there it doesn't, it doesn't exist uh, my wife has been trying to get me to see a quiet place for months she brings it up constantly says i'm gonna love it and i'm just not there for that but as with guillermo del toro's 2015 spook crimson peak there's one surefire way to short circuit my defenses sumptuous period detail if it's a supernatural film set in a historical setting you don't actually even need to ask uh i already bought us both tickets Let, let's let's go This is especially true of a film that trailed Crimson Peak by only a few months, Robert Eggers' indie horror masterpiece The Witch, a tiny film that turned a big profit and used it to buy a big chunk of real estate in my brain for months. I think its themes and plot are robust enough to serve as our framework for a two-part dissection of witches and witch hunts in pop culture, so fair warning, it's going to get very spoiled, as will a bunch of other witch-related films and shows from past ages. Hexen, Maid of Salem, I Married a Witch, Bell Book and Candle, Bewitched, the TV show, The Witchfinder General, Hocus Pocus, The Crucible, Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, yes, I said Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, The Blair Witch Project, and Paranorman. We're going to run the gamut here, from horror to romance, silent cinema to stop-motion animation, and see how Eggers' film about a New England girl accused of witchcraft by her suspicious family works in dialogue with almost a century of witches on film. The final image of Robert Eggers' debut film is a last shot for the ages. Thomason, our virtuous teenage puritan, makes good on her pact with the goat, demon, black Philip, and nude, makes like the witches around her, and levitates into the air. She is giddy. Unrepressed. I left that theater feeling a queasy ecstasy. Others just left the theater feeling queasy. What I want to focus on in this hour, our witching hour, is a prominent critique of Robert Eggers' debut film that came from a vocal contingent who really, truly admired what Eggers pulled off, with a major caveat. They praised his six years of intense research that built on a lifelong obsession with his home region's history with the supernatural, praised the difficult isolated shoot with multiple child actors and a major role for a live animal, if you are and praised a moody piece of art that transports its audience back to a more elemental eldritch horror. Make no mistake, the admiration was there, but they hated what that ending meant for the film. Alan Sherstal in the Village Voice. What sense does it make, just at the film's end, to cloak its nonsense in the mantle of authenticity? For all its genuflections toward history, The Witch offers the same cheap jack lesson field trippers get when they visit tourist trap museums in today's Salem, Massachusetts. Every condemnation of witch-burning fools is matched by some shivery spook out a promise that we'll never know just what evil might have romped around the Massachusetts pines. The Witch purports at times to confront ignorance and hysteria, but in the end, for horror thrills, Eggers' film sides with the preachers and executioners. It literalizes the fevered terrors of our god-mad ancestors, and then brags that it's all steeped in research. It's like if, a couple of centuries from now, the latest holodeck true crime flick is a West Memphis 3 story that wraps with the boys high-fiving Lucifer. The film's a well-shot day-ruiner. Sherstall, and others, can't quite wrap their heads around, why, a film that purports to be this immensely researched story of a young Puritan girl unfairly facing an accusation of witchcraft would dilute its message by showing us actual baby-slicing witches. That may be confounding, but our protagonist fraternizing with her family's tormentors and becoming a witch herself? That's an insult. And from where I'm sitting, the insulted parties have a really strong point because while demonizing vampires, aliens, and swamp creatures sullies no one's good name, there were actually thousands of women, and men, and sometimes animals, burned, hanged, drowned, and pressed for witchcraft. In the intervening centuries, most of us have evolved to a place where we understand that the accused were actually the victims, and their accusers, judges, and executioners were the real monsters. Which means there's this inherent discomfort whenever we trot out the witch as a storytelling device. And sure, we'll accept the hag of the fairy tale or fantasy realm because she's so consciously removed from the real world. And as for the good, kind witch who lives among us engaging in occasional spellcasting mischief, well, that's just a worthwhile allegory for difference in hiding in plain sight, like the X-Men's mutants. But imply that there were real witches causing havoc in New England, in, say, Salem, Massachusetts. And things get murky fast. For instance, the reaction of Salon's Andrew O'Hare was not positive when the haunting in the Based on a True Story, The Conjuring, turned out to be the work of an accused witch. Says O'Hare, here's the real true story behind The Conjuring. Anytime people get worked up about a menace they believe in but can't actually see, demons, commies, jihadis, hordes of hoodie-wearing thugs, they're likely to take it out on the weakest and most vulnerable people in society. The Conjuring wants to walk back one of America's earliest historical crimes, the Salem Witch Trials of 1692, and make it look like there must have been something to it after all. Those terrified colonial women, brainwashed, persecuted, and murdered by the religious authorities of their day? See, they actually were witches who slaughtered children and pledged their love to Satan and everything. That's not poetic license, it's reprehensible and inexcusable bullshit less egregious but somewhat akin to making a movie that claims in passing that slavery was okay or that the Holocaust didn't happen. As a ninth-generation descendant of Abigail Faulkner, a convicted Salem witch who only escaped execution because she was pregnant at the time, I call down a terrible malediction upon the people who made this entertaining but indefensible movie. In his review, O'Hare alludes to an even more uncomfortable aspect of the real-world witch film. Pretty early on in cinematic history, the accused witch's plight, the witch hunt, the naming of names, became an allegorical stand-in for modern, government-approved fear-mongering. Against communists, against terrorists, against the other. Most famously the project of playwright Arthur Miller, who we'll get to in part two of this series, this was a way of showing that while the government may no longer believe in magic spells, its sense of justice hasn't evolved much since the Middle Ages. A mob mentality. How do you know she is a witch? She looks like one yeah. unprovable accusations. Bring her forward. What makes you think she is a witch? Well, she turned me into a newt. A newt. We got better. Burn her An unquenchable bloodlust. What do you do with witches? Burn! And what do you burn apart from witches? Four witches! An authority figure with an absurd test. So, logically, if she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood. And therefore, a A a witch! A witch! A witch! Most people think this legendary bit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail works because this mob has so clearly fabricated a story that they'll do anything to defend. Did you dress her up like this? No! 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 Yes! 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 A A bit! A bit! A bit! She has got a wart! Also, because the method for determining the veracity of their story is so silly. And all the more galling because it's really only one step removed from the real witch test of seeing if they'd float. And the bit does operate on that level initially. But what I think many Americans miss, what I'd always missed up until I bothered to look up what the witch actually says upon being officially declared a witch, It's a fair cop. Is that in spite of everyone on hand being an idiot, they might have actually gotten it right. It's a fair cop. It's a fair cop. Some interpret that line to mean, ugh, whatever, what's the point? But it is most commonly used to say, all right, you got me. She seems to be admitting that even though the villagers are dunderheads, she is a witch. The pythons are at least opening the door to that reading. But wait, that's not funny. The butt of the joke is supposed to be the mob mentality that leads to ridiculous accusations. Also, there are real people who die because of these sorts of convoluted tests, so how is it funny to say they were... right? That sense I had when I looked up Fair Cop, of having the rug pulled out from under me, of wondering what the pythons were thinking adding that line when the easy joke at the expense of the accusers was right there. That helped me to fully understand the indignance detractors felt at the sight of Thomason joining the ranks of her family's murderers at the end of the witch. The point of this whole exercise was to condemn those who thought she was a witch, right? So what sense does it make if she is one? So that leaves us with our big question for this series. Can a witch hunt narrative be effective if it includes actual witches? Part 1. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? The bad witch. Let's say I'm a lawyer tasked with defending the malefic witch's place in storytelling. Now, Considering the actual historical atrocities her cackling presence in a book or film downplays, if not outright celebrates, I have to show actual discernible value in order to get her acquitted in this theoretical court. Alright, my defense opens with the witch as she exists to children the world over, as the foundation of so many of our fairy tale bedtime stories and fantasy realms. Yeah, they're not going to win any feminist awards, but these envious queens, gingerbread house crones, and maleficent fairies, these white witches and wicked witches, are an effective counterbalance in stories for lost underdogs, and they effectively represent the menace of temptation from juicy apple to Turkish delight. Yeah, they are horrific, but cordoned off in their once upon a times and their wardrobe lands, they are the stuff of dreams, or really, nightmares. Removed from the religious implications of witchcraft, the kissing of Satan's posterior, the confession of sins, we have an effective mythological- Objection! The defense is literally negating its own argument and bringing in fantasy witches that have little to no merit in a discussion about the panic surrounding Satan worshippers. Sustained. Counsel should keep in mind that binging all of Daredevil on Netflix does not grant the right to just say anything if it's couched in legal jargon, and will restrict all further arguments to witches presented in a historical context. Sorry, Your Honor. Alright. Uh, as a child of the 90s, my go-to for explicitly Satan-worshipping witches is millennial rallying cry, Hocus Pocus. I will ask thee one final time. Yes? What hast thou done with my son, Thackeray? Thackeray. Answer me! Well, I don't know. Cat's got my tongue. This 1993 film opens in Salem, Massachusetts, with the Puritans hanging the Sanderson sisters after they've killed at least one little girl. So these are some serious witches. My ungodly book speaks to you when all hallows eve when the moon is around, a virgin will summon us from under the ground. In the present day, (laughs) Salemites actually boo the new kid in town when he refuses to humor their Aw, come on, witches are super fun, obsession. So because he's neurotic about being a virgin, he lights a candle he probably shouldn't light, and the Sanderson sisters return in the modern day, hoping to feast on some more children. Surely there must be something interesting going on here. Bubble, bubble, I'm in trouble. Mm. <laughs> well, Nancy, we desire children. It <laughs> hey, may take me a couple of tries, but I don't think that'd be a problem. I'll oh, up. up. There's not. This is the absolute worst-case scenario for our defense. Not only is the guy who voiced the cat the only one in the Hocus Pocus cast who understands that there is a wide plane between dull and hysterical that it might be a good place for an actor to live in, this may be the only film that completely, unabashedly, without even a hint of remorse or nuance, thinks the people of Salem did a really bang-up job, just a bunch of decent townsfolk doing their best in difficult times, what with the three sisters kidnapping and eating their children. Revivifying the witches in a modern Salem that has an economy that's completely dependent on the notoriety of their horrible deeds does open the door to some fun commentary, maybe some hard-edged satire in which the commerce-driven townsfolk are swallowing a bit of their own medicine, or perhaps some we've learned some things back in which the children of the 90s figure out there was a bit more to the story of the Salem witches and don't just go around trying to re-kill them and Hocus Pocus squats right in the wasteland between those two poles. Winnie. Its entire insulting premise is just here, so that we can see Kathy and Jimmy ride a vacuum cleaner. It's easy to imagine the aged Arthur Miller of 1993 watching three adolescents celebrate as they burn these Salem witches in their school kiln, and going, Yeesh, I better get cracking on a film version of The Crucible so I can wash away the bad taste of that. The nostalgist in me wants to say that if this film were fun, which it surprisingly is not, that it would be excusable. After all, moralism isn't the only way to measure films. A film can fail our very specific litmus test by being disrespectful to witches and still be a crackerjack film. But Disney proved within a few short years that it knew better. I'm very sorry, fellow millennials, but upon rewatch, it appears Hocus Pocus was just an expensive tryout for Disney Channel original movies like Halloween Town, Under Wraps, don't look under the bed and the like, with Halloween Town especially proving that a Disney Channel original movie could make a lot more sense out of the ties between the supernatural and a persecution complex with a lot less money. I don't like witches. They're mean and scary. Oh, no, 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 sweetheart. I mean, they're just like everyone else. Some are kind, some are mean. That's the way they use their magic. You can't tell what's in a monster's heart just by looking at them. I mean, sometimes, some of us. The... ugliest little monsters turned out to be the nicest. I want to go there! So now we know for certain what a witch story shouldn't do. Say unequivocally that accused witches were actual witches, offer no counterexamples, pat the Salem Township on the back for its fine work. Apparently we disturbed the spirit of Ben's ancestor who was persecuted as a witch way back in 1657. Unjustly persecuted. Sarah Ravencroft was a medicine woman who practiced natural healing and was unfairly accused because of her eccentric ways. Just like the Salem witch trials, many men and women who were a bit different or didn't conform to the codes of the colony suffered the same fate. (laughs) Sarah was a healer. Even a film as obsessed with the eating habits of a stoner and his talking Great Dane as Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost manages to get this at least partially right. While it's got nothing on the far superior Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island, for real, not kidding. Witch's Ghost manages to both satirize the witch-based commerce of Massachusetts towns and ensnare some do-gooders who find themselves on the wrong side of the good witch-bad witch divide, a good-bad dichotomy which you probably at least want to bring up if you're going to have witches menace New England. So she was a real Wiccan? That's right. Oh, so cool. And that's why I get upset when people accuse her of being a witch. Basically, in this film, uh, alternate reality Stephen King, as voiced by Tim Curry, convinces the Scooby gang to help clear his ancestor's name in the wake of the appearance of her ghost, which, in classic Scooby-Doo fashion, the townspeople from the mayor on down are faking to draw in tourists. I wanted to apologize for using your ancestor in our little publicity stunt. If the tourist trade was so slow, we were desperate. Sarah Ravencroft was a wicker, a healer. Not the evil witch she was accused of being, pleads Stephen Tim Curry King. Ben, that doesn't seem to be a journal at all. Because it isn't, Belma. It's a spell book. Of course, no <gasps> one wastes Tim Curry on innocent pleas for help, and it turns out he's a big liar with a booming evil laugh, and he summons a big, bad Sarah Ravengroth And uh, a turkey gets turned into a giant monster turkey... <laughs> There are still major problems here, but props to this direct-to-video kid's flick for being a surprisingly educational primer to Wicca. Witch's Ghost also gestures towards the one thing that is most critical to a successful bad witch film, the relationship between the civilized world and the unexplored, untamed wilderness the woods so the creepy this is where we can draw a straight line from Eggers the witch to the most famous witch film of all time the Blair Witch Project hunting uh-huh and they were camped near the cabin or something that she's supposed to haunt no. uh-huh no and they disappeared off the face of the earth no. really okay it's all right Ingrid i'm just telling a scary story but it's not true it's not according to our previous ruling the Blair Witch Project should be another hocus pocus level disgrace it's only witch is a stone cold killer And sure, we could exempt it for taking place in Maryland, far from the seat of American witch-phobia, but I think we can actually mount a real defense for this film without resorting to technicalities. What is The Blair Witch Project about, really? When you clear away the moss of almost two decades of hinky associations with found footage and viral marketing and Sundance hype, when you clear all that away, what's left? Witches in days gone by were roasted just like my Vienna sausage. These three twenty-somethings wandering the woods in search of a legendary witch feel safe, even when things look bad. They subsist on the idea that in America, at the turn of the millennium, everywhere Let's must go. be a day's walk from somewhere. We keep going south. We will get out. I would love to hear this right now. I really would. I'm just trying to say go. that you know we have to. I know. Rationally say they, they might they might very well go on forever compared to our footsteps. Not, not possible. Not possible in this country. Not not possible. possible. Because this is America and it's not possible. We've destroyed most of our natural resources. Let's just keep going. Their witch hunt isn't some religiously motivated, persecution-based crusade. It's a thrill-seeking, camera-toting exploration of the unknown. An attempt by Heather and her crew to turn the last few stones left unturned. The beauty of the film? Those stones gather together into formations and fight back. The woods take on a life of their own. The Blair Witch, who we never see, may as well be the woods. woke up this morning, just like two seconds ago, and there are piles of rocks outside of our tent. As hope begins to fail them, as their paper map fails them and gets thrown in a river for its trouble, as it becomes clear that America's wilderness is more expansive than any of them had imagined, our protagonist, Heather, retreats into her camera. The lens is the only way she has left of shrinking this deadly frontier down to a size that she can fathom. For those hoping for the scariest film of all time, Blair Witch Project is probably a disappointment. Thematically, though, with the ways it prefigures the oncoming reality TV boom as the addicted drug hit of a society trying to process a world too vast and unknowable to comprehend, it is a wonder. If the Blair Witch Project is about the last few pockets of nature fighting back against civilizing influences, the witch is like an origin story to that. Once, civilization was a few ramshackle townships, and their backyard was thousands of miles of unforgiving nature. The Blair Witch may very well be the last in a dying species. Even in the town adjacent to her shack, many don't believe in her, but once, back in Thomason's time. The sprawling woods contained entire covens, and everyone feared them. The way Eggers figures it in The Witch, the witches he shows us were plenty scary, but the woods they lived in, endless and shadowy, they deserve the demonic choir that soundtracks their introduction. So, while at her very worst, the Bad Witch is just validation for 17th century Salem sexists, she is also at her very best our most evocative way of capturing the distinctly American fear, that no matter how tightly packed we get, no matter how much one city's suburbs bleed into the next city's suburbs, our continent is simply too vast to be truly known. Even 19 years after Heather, Josh, and Mike left Burkittsville with cameras running so they could hunt down the Blair Witch, even with the advent of cell phones and GPS, you're still unlikely to find an American crazy enough to think that they could safely navigate every square inch of the USA. The fact that we have a Blair Witch sequel with drones and cell phones is proof that we still have this fear. There are places that even cell phone service doesn't reach. There are places Google hasn't mapped, and in those blank spaces where breadcrumbs are still your only hope of making it back home, witches dwell. And it's all because of me that we're here now, hungry and cold. If witches scare us because they, alone, have tamed the untamed wilderness, the logical next step for the witch allegory would be finding some way to civilize the uncivilized. What lies on the path from boiling children to Hermione Granger? From lubricating one's broomstick with the blood of an unbaptized baby to Quidditch? Part 2. Are you a good witch or a bad witch? The Good Witch. Hi, my name is Sabrina. I hope I haven't disappointed you. I mean, I hope you didn't expect to find me living on some dreary mountaintop wearing some grubby old rags and making some nasty old brew. No, we modern witches believe life should be a ball. The first time we meet Sabrina the Teenage Witch in a 1962 issue of Archie's Madhouse, she says something that pretty much anyone who knows even one thing about Sabrina will know to be a lie. We can make others fall in love, but we're not permitted to fall in love ourselves. But... No, Sabrina loves Harvey Kinkle. Fact. What if I put a Dr. Doolittle spell on Harvey? That way you two can talk to each other. You've done that spell before? No, but I can. She's just your typical run-of-the-mill teenage girl who happens to be a witch. Studying the magic book? Who are you and what have you done with Sabrina? Well, at her inception, that Sabrina is still yet to come. No character in mid-century popular culture can just happen to be a witch. So this circa 1962 no love rule, also which is being unable to cry, is the last bridge we need to cross to get to 1964's Bewitched, the story of Samantha Stevens, a witch who marries a mortal man in spite of her mother's clucking disapproval. He happens to be, if you'll excuse the expression, a normal mortal human being. Well, then that's easy. I'll just have him trip over a rug and break a knob. Mother, you'll leave him alone. From there, we can pretty reasonably make the leap to a world where the fantasy that anyone among us could be a witch would trigger the response, Oh, I do hope the owl drops off my letters soon, then, and not burn them! Sure, there had been good witches before our two iconic 60s witches, Sabrina and Samantha. Wizard of Oz author L. Frank Baum saw to that. But saying a witch was good was entirely different from saying a witch was marriageable material. And so the two witches Sabrina and Samantha's creators turned to for inspiration, well, they didn't start out good at all. These two sources of inspiration are proof that pre-1964 you had to jump through a lot of hoops in order to get your audience supporting a nice upstanding American man marrying a witch of all things. Chief among those was making her not want to be a witch anymore. The first source, 1942's I Married a Witch, is a zany sham of a movie that thinks the brainwashing away of a woman's agency is a fine way to start a marriage. The second, 1958's Bell Book and Candle, is a fascinating and fun-to-look-at gem of a comedy that still can only come up with a deeply compromised ending. The only way for a fierce, independent woman to love a man is for her to cease being a fierce, independent woman, to lose access to that side of herself completely. Both films serve up two themes that end up being the founding principles of the bewitched pilot. There's the notion of witches as, literally, above it all, carefree bohemians who look down at the, well, let's just say it, muggles, pushing through their day-to-day slog and think, ugh, what squares? And there's the push-pull of honesty and dishonesty. Do I use my powers to get my way? And to tell or not to tell? In this regard, I Married a Witch from 1942, is especially vile. And I'm sorry, I know I'm in the minority here. This is like a Criterion Collection movie that's been rediscovered as a hidden gem. But for me, watching it now, I can only see it as a rough first draft for stories to come, stories that more successfully equate femininity and witchcraft. And may this be the fate of all the witches, warlocks, and sorcerers who attempt to work their evil magic within the township limits of Roxbury. So Veronica Lake plays an evil witch, Jennifer, bent on ruining the love lives of the descendants of the Salem man that accused her of witchcraft way back in the day. And she does this by cursing all of the woolly men to always marry the wrong person? Which, I guess, basically equates to marrying unloving scolds who churn out the next generation of woolies? She brought her golden tresses close to my face and whispered, Jonathan Woolley... Thou hast denounced me as a witch, for that thou shalt be accursed. Thou and thy children and thy children's children, all will be under the same curse. This pretty well sets us up to know that in the end, Jennifer will be the right person for politician Wallace Woolley, played by Friedrich March, who charmingly thought Lake was a brainless blonde sexpot void of any acting ability, in case you're wondering if the sexual politics are as retrograde off-camera as they would be in front of it. But what screwy shenanigans will get us there, huh? How about a love potion? A thou witch or a woman, prepare a love filter at once. Dost thou recall the incantation? Listen. Jennifer brews it to make Wooly fall in love with her, a love which a witch can't possibly reciprocate, meaning he will be trapped. But um, she's actually made to drink it herself, and now she fake loves Wooly. Here, here, drink this. There. Yeah, that's better. How do you feel? I... I feel strange. Mm -hmm. This is important to remember. This love is no more a real expression of Jennifer's feelings than Wooly's love would have been had he ingested the potion. We would feel awful if Wooly married Jennifer because of a love potion. Keep that in mind. From here on out, the film treats this artificial love as the genuine article. Her ardent passion drives her to betray her father, confess her true nature to Wooly, manipulate the election in his favor, and ultimately, come back to him even when that should be impossible. The two marry and have cute little children. Jennifer! I told you never to play with that broom. Oh, This is supposed to be really heartening, even charming. But then you remember that there's still an actual person in there. The real Jennifer, screaming into the void, trapped for the rest of her life with a man she only feels anything for because of a love potion. I think we're supposed to brush all this aside because old Jennifer was bad. Of course she is, audience member of the 1940s. All witches are bad. And, you know, she literally got a taste of her own medicine, so it serves her right. What will it taste like, father? Like cool water. But really, that means both of our leads, Happily Ever After, is a nightmare. Treat him like a slave. I'll make him suffer, body and soul. So yeah, I don't care much for the first draft of this story. The second draft is a big leap forward, in my opinion. Though we'll still see some of the same problems. Bell, Book and Candle is the less famous Jimmy Stewart, Kim Novak film of 1958. Stewart is on loan to Paramount here in exchange for Novak's appearance in Vertigo. I've sort of been rattling, haven't I? I... You know, it's getting late. I think maybe I'd better... So the film features Novak as an extremely powerful but somewhat reluctant witch. She thinks casting spells all willy-nilly is irresponsible and immature, but she's spurred to drastic action, casting a powerful love charm, when her cute upstairs neighbor brings around his fiancée... I believe Miss Kittridge and I know each other. ...who happens to be the stuck-up square who ratted her out to the college dean well, for... get this, uh, <laughs> walking around campus barefoot and got her expelled. Yes, of course. You were that girl who used to come to class barefoot. (laughs) They put you on probation for it, didn't they? So here it is again, that dichotomy, the hip and the square, but multiplied tenfold this time. In a lot of ways, Bell, Book and Candle is all about style over substance, and the team of director Richard Quine and cinematographer James Wong Howe work hard to make the underground scene that witches and warlocks move through colorful, and there's no other way to say it, cool. In that way, the film pretty easily becomes an allegory for just about any subculture you want to lay over it. LGBTQ, BDSM, Bohemian, Beatnik. This film's Zodiac Club, hidden and only accessible to those who know it's there, calls to mind any number of New York clubs in the 50s that stayed out of the phone book for any number of reasons and there's a subplot in here about an eccentric writer who claims to be in the know about the scene, but he has no clue, even when the scene is right under his nose. I could never get near a deal like that. You are nearer than you think. It's all very easy to draw up this allegory. The trouble is, if you read the film too much as a celebration of outsider subcultures, you're bound to be disappointed by the ending. Wracked by guilt, Novak's gill confesses her subterfuge to Stuart Shep, and realizes, once he's gone, that, uh-oh, tears. she really did love him after all. Real tears. It's true, that old wife's tale. It's true. With this realization comes the loss of her powers. She is a witch no longer. This vulnerability endears her to Shapen while the heart swells seeing them embrace at the end. There's also a crushing disappointment seeing the enormously self-possessed Gil who sold intriguing magical artifacts from the world over while rocking black turtlenecks all day every day, turned into this normcore girlfriend ready to live a normcore life in her normcore boutique. All that's left is a pink dress and a blonde haircut ready to sell seafoam seashells for the rest of her days. Like I Even I her beloved cat won't come near her anymore. I could get down here this instant. The big step forward here, though, is that the story works internally, if not yet allegorically. If you choose to read the film through a queer lens, which is a really interesting reading, this is a deeply unsettling ending. But, read as Gil, the character in Bell Book and Candle, doing the things Gil would do, it actually works. Whereas the real Jennifer and her agency are completely subsumed by the requirements of the storyline and I Married a Witch, Gil's story follows a natural arc. I don't think we're supposed to see that arc as one that leads from transgressive wrongness to bland rightness. Instead, it's an arc of maturation. It's a story as old as marriage itself, though one that usually and disappointingly finds the woman giving up more than the man. An incredibly self-possessed young woman seeds some of that self to make room for someone else. The film's affectionate portrayal of a hidden subculture, the verve and panache with which it fetishizes the secret world of witches, may read as subversive. But on a story level, Bell Book and Candle is anything but. Now, I doubt subversive is the word that comes to mind for most people when they think of its direct descendant, Bewitched. But truthfully, this is where this particular witch's brew of allegory, femininity, and comedy finally reaches some level of potency. Once upon a time, there was a typical American girl who happened to bump into a typical red-blooded American boy. By this point, the iconography of Bewitched, the nose-twitching, the two Darrens, it's all superseded the allegory, to the point where the 2005 Nicole Kidman adaptation was an adaptation within an adaptation, with new characters playing the Elizabeth and Darren roles in a story within the story. All iconography. You're still very young and inexperienced. You don't know what prejudice you'll run into. They all think that witches work only one day a year on Halloween. We all wear those big ugly hats and fly around on brooms. What if he finds out you're a witch? But premiering in 1964, at the very heart of the civil rights struggle, the original Bewitched was, from the outset, deadly serious about slipping the kinky, the strange, and the other into the typical American household. Critically, it did the one thing a story like this needed to do to truly work. It let Samantha keep her powers. That this girl is a witch. It let her love Darren and be a witch at the same time. Now, every episode, including numerous episodes that dealt with Salem, was a push and pull between not forgetting who she truly is, a witch, as her mother and Dora so frequently tells her, and working toward who her marriage makes her. Of course, what is not subversive about Bewitched is that what her marriage makes her is a housewife. This is the story of the domestication of the witch, truly of turning her into a domestic creature. But as we've seen, with every iteration, she gets to keep a bit more of herself as part of the deal. And subsequent witches, Melissa Joan Hart's Sabrina, Buffy's Willow Rosenberg, will take even more. This is how we get from Confessions of Guilt and I Married a Witch, I think I'd better tell you. You'll never forgive me if you found out. Bell Booking Candle. I'm one. You're one what? And bewitch. I am a witch. A real house-haunting, broom-riding, cauldron-stirring witch. To this admission to a world of wonder. You're a wizard, Harry. I'm a what? A wizard, and a thumping good tonight, wager. A world where being a witch, like Harry Potter's friend Hermione Granger, is a great thing. At each step along the way, we've seen the starting point for the witch advance a bit more toward direct audience identification. Starting at out-and-out malevolence, then mischievous outsiderness, then relative normativity striving to reach actual normativity, and then finally an out-and-out celebration of difference, of finding an ordinary boy in a cupboard or a young girl with muggle parents, children who feel different, and telling them that they are different, and having that be a good thing, a generation-defining thing. This is all important context because in The Witch, Eggers is actually playing his own interpretation of this tune, but he's actually playing it backwards. And yeah, go ahead, make your uh, backward satanic messages jokes here. Instead of following the arc of a young woman from witch to homemaker, He's following her from homemaker to witch. Remember the dichotomy we've seen over and over again now, of the muggles living mundane lives and the witches living a life of freedom. And then think about the way that Eggers uses those same dichotomies to push us toward wishing something more for Thomason. Something other than the Puritan drudgery of tending goats and collecting eggs, chopping wood, and this is very important, this next one. Telling God above what an inherently sinful creature you are. Because as Eggers makes clear in a conversation between Thomason's father and brother, was Samuel Born We pray he offended God's kingdom. The ideology of Puritans involved people coming out pre-damned. Even babies. God already knows whether you're destined for heaven or hell. Nothing you do is gonna change his mind. So, from Thomason's perspective, once her family is dead and all her options are closed. Her options at the end of the film are starve, go into town and be hanged for witchcraft, or become an actual witch. Why wouldn't her response to Black Phillip's entreaty... Wouldst thou like to live deliciously? ...be why the literal hell not? Yes. If God has already damned her, and considering what has just transpired, I doubt she thinks God is on her side. Why not fly? Let's walk this back. Even if no babies had been stolen and no brothers possessed, Thomason is already in an awful position. Because her family is in exile, she draws suspicion simply because her brother Caleb seems to be developing an uncomfortable attraction to his older sister. She is literally bewitching, in the modern sense of the word. And in the 17th century, that could get you killed dead too. This is where it's important to remember that the arc we just discussed is still arcing. That arc has taken words like bewitching, enchanting, spellbinding, and it's turned them from connotations of satanic possession to connotations of attraction, which is nice. But, when you call someone bewitching, probably treating it as interchangeable for beautiful or stunning, you are literally saying that there is something innate in that person's physiognomy that turns off your defenses and takes you over. And while I'm not saying we should strike that vein of pickup line from the lexicon, it's good to be conscious of this. While we don't attribute it to witchcraft anymore, we still do that to women. We still blame them, how they look and what they wear, for what men, who we must not believe to be in control of their own bodies, do. All the time. Your Excellencies, UN Secretary-General... If we didn't, then Hermione Granger, Champion of the House Elves, Well, actually, the actress who played her Emma Watson, but still, wouldn't have quit acting for a year so she could focus exclusively on making the world see women as more than what men make them. We are launching a campaign called He for She. I am reaching out to you because we need your help. We want to end gender inequality. And to do this, we need everyone involved. I think this is a good place to pause our tour and take a break. We've dashed around from decade to decade, been chased through the woods by a bad witch, and been in the immediate proximity of more than one love spell. <sighs> Exhausting stuff. Maybe we'll grab a coffee and we'll meet back at this spot in uh, a week or so with a close look at Salem and its witch trials, which will force us to reckon with the kind of witch story where there's no good witch, no bad witch, no witch at all. Or so it would seem. That and more on part two of The Witch Hunt. Iconography is written and produced by me, Charles Gustine. Thanks to Carol Zoll for script editing and feedback, and Sabrina's first appearance was brought to life in this episode by the great and good Alice White of the podcasts Those Happy Places and Rogue Fun. You can hit me up on Twitter at IconographyPod or on Facebook at facebook.com iconography iconographypodcast and tell me what you thought of the episode, what you'd like to see in part two, And how wrong I am about Hocus Pocus. Or I married a witch. I'll be surprised if the same people call me out on both, but I'd really like to meet that person and be friends with them. Whether it's through social media or the website, iconographypodcast.com, or a review on iTunes, which I always appreciate, it's your turn to tell the people what you thought. Iconographers, I ask you, isn't it it iconic? iconic? Iconography is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts. You can check out all of them at hubspokeaudio.org. One of the founding members in the collective, Soonish, just launched their third season. The first episode of the new season, when minds and machines converge, looks at how computers that can read our brains have been used in all sorts of not necessarily practical ways, and how they have recently found one actually practical application, helping people find the focus to meditate. Check that episode out at soonish.org or anywhere fine podcasts are available.